You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Great to see you. A um, couple of things. Go ahead and turn to uh, those, those couple of passages. Genesis chapter 1, Jeremiah 2, and 1 Peter um, chapter 2. Go ahead and get those ready. Um, we're kind of going to be working and kind of weaving in between those, those three places today. Um, so as you turn there, um, we, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, we have been introducing you to these various fictitious people, right? So we've introduced to you the angry man. Um, last week it was the anxious lady. And this week after the service, you've got a new guy that comes up and catches you as soon as you finish. This is the addicted man. Um, this is the, a man that's got, uh, this is a man that's got an addiction to pornography. So he catches you as soon as the service is over. And he lays out his addiction before you. And it sounds something like this. He's 40 years old. He's got a, um, three kids. He's got a great wife. And he has got this sick addiction um, to, to pornography. And so he, he starts spilling guts that he's a subscriber to like 10 different websites. He's got stashes of, pornogra- or of, of pornographic like magazines hidden from his wife in several different places. Um, there's very few days that would go by that he doesn't linger over pornographic images. And so he, he lays all this out before he, he goes one step further and says, um, but that's really not the worst of it. Um, the worst of it is not what I see. The worst of it is what I think. And so he unpacks his mind for you. And so he lays out before you that, that he can't see women without undressing them. Coworkers, friends, whoever. He, he can't do it. And so he, he lays all this out before you. And by the way, see, when you start talking like these sort of things, this is where a lot of men get really quiet. Because all of this stuff that I'm saying here resonates with a lot of men, right? And so, um, so he lays all this out before you and he says, uh, what, what, what's the issue? Like, what's my problem? Okay, now I hope this is the point of the sermon that you could start to, to just get up here and do right now. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, this, this should be sounding familiar to you at this point. That when he says, what is the problem? He's asking for the diagnosis. And if your diagnosis starts with circumstances, like if it starts with, well, you were exposed when you were a teenager, now it's kind of blossoming. So now it all kind of goes back to your childhood. No, it goes back to like your wife's the issue. No, it's, it's your computer. That's, it's, if, if we start going circumstances, we've missed the diagnosis. His problem is not his circumstances. His problem is his heart. That in his heart, he is trusting and treasuring something above Jesus, right? That he's prizing and pursuing something smaller than Jesus. This is idolatry language. See, this is the issue. He has set up an idol in his heart and he's looking to that idol for satisfaction. See, behind all of our weird behavior is unbelief. Behind all of our weird behavior is this unbelief that turns from God for our satisfaction and begins looking for satisfaction, ultimate satisfaction in his gifts. See, this is on the root level why we do what we do. And, and so we've, we've kept this um, picture in front of you for the last few weeks. Let me just show it to you one more time. That if you take like that top layer up here, that's your behavior. And if you want to slap pornography into that, you can put it in there. It doesn't matter what it is. But here's what we're trying to say. That the primary issue with our man is not his pornography. His pornography needs to change, but that's not the primary issue. If all we do is address his behavior, we are, like we're just treating the symptoms of the problem. Are, are you getting that? If we don't get down to his heart, then, then we can put all these new kind of boundaries around his behavior, but it will never change him. See, the gospel gets down to his heart. See, his problem is that he is believing not the promises of God and his gospel, See, here's what the promises of God and his gospel would sound like in this. The promise sounds like, um, I have given you everything you need for life and godliness. I have given you everything because of the work of Jesus on the cross. 
everything to meet the deepest thirst of your heart. Warning from God. You can look in a thousand different ways and on a thousand different roads, but every search outside of me for satisfaction is a dead end. It leaves you sicker than when you started. See, and here's the, the promise of, of this comfort idol. We'll just say pornography is what we're dealing with here. See, the promise of, of this idol sounds like this. If you want satisfaction, if you want contentment, then it requires me. Sit down at that computer and watch that. See, see, this is the promise of this idol. And the warning goes like this. You, you know, you know that that straight and narrow road, you, you, you know that the prohibitions and commands of God, you, you know that those are going to rob you of satisfaction, not give that to you, right? See, this is the, this is the warning that that idol would give. And see, for all of us, this is the battle for all of our lives. See, the battle of, for behavior, it is won or lost down here with your belief. We, we always act out, behave in accordance with what we believe. Do you see this? So see, our man, his issue is not belie- like it's not behaving better. It's believing better. There's a part and piece of the gospel that in this instance, when he sits down and watches that stuff, in, in that moment, he's not believing about the gospel. This is why everything is a gospel issue. This is why before he deals just with his behavior, he, he needs to start reminding himself of who he is and what he has in Christ. See, he's forgotten what he has. He's forgotten these promises and pledges that God has given to him. So he needs to to roll over these gospel promises, to study and stare at the gospel, to remind and to remind himself and to remember all that he has, all that he is in Jesus. This is what we call preaching the gospel to ourselves. It's taking these great gospel realities, preaching them to our heart, so we stay mindful of all that we have and all that we are, right? This is how we apply the life-giving medicine of the gospel to our heart on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Thursday, right? This is how we do it. Okay, so, so this is what we're trying to do in the month of May. We're rolling through the, this vocabulary. We're hoping that God would give us as a corporate group of people, as a, as a church family, a vocabulary to preach the gospel to our own heart and to admonish the hearts of one another with it. This is the hope that we're kind of walking through here. And, and so we've got these four great truths, implications from them. Let me just read these, these out to you here. Month of May, we're working through these things. Um, last week, it was God is great for us because of Jesus, so we don't have to be in control. This week, God is good for us because of Jesus, so we don't have to look for satisfaction elsewhere. Third, God is gracious to us because of Jesus, so we don't have to look for approval elsewhere. We don't have to live with a continual need to prove ourselves before people. Four, God is glorious um, to us because of Jesus, so we don't have to fear men. See, when, when you boil down your behavior, your behavior issues, weird behavior comes out of you. When you boil down the reason for that weird behavior, you're going to see that underneath that behavior is a failure to believe one or more of these things. And we just told you last week to test yourself. The next time you find weird behavior that comes up in your life, ask yourself these two questions. Is the way I'm thinking, feeling, responding, is it reflective of a gospeled heart? A heart that's really bought into the gospel. Is it reflective of that? And if not, ask yourself the question, what is it that I'm not believing about the gospel? And you're going to find one of these things on a foundational level that you're not believing. One or more of these things. So, So test yourself. Okay, so so this morning we got a lot of work to do. We're on this idea of God is good. So Genesis um, 1 and 2, that's where you need to be. God is good. Okay, now when we say God is good, here's what we mean by that. We are saying that God satisfies your soul. 
That that only God can quench the deepest thirst of your heart. This is what we mean, that he is to be prized and pursued. And when we pursue him and prize him, he becomes precious and pleasurable to us. He satisfies us. This is what we're saying when we say God is good. He he satisfies. Okay, this is the imagery. So Genesis um, 1 and 2, here's what you've got here. And by the way, we spend a, a, a lot of time in these first couple of chapters of the Bible because they're foundational to all of life for us. That They set up essentially the biblical narrative. So these first couple of chapters set up everything you see from Genesis chapter 4 on. Okay, so, so here's where the Bible starts. Genesis 1, 1, if you're looking at your Bible. It um, goes like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, so as an expression of, of God's goodness and his greatness, he speaks and things just start happening, right? He, he speaks and the stars show up. He, he makes the call, mountains appear. He gets land. He gets the sun. He gets the sky. He, he, all the plants, animals, he's creating all these things. And you get down to verse 26 and you've got the pinnacle kind of piece of creation that, that happens. Um, verse 26, it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. This is the climax of the creation narrative. He, he makes man and woman. And then notice verse um, 29. And by the way, all in all this creating, you, you have this continual refrain in Genesis chapter 1 seven times where it's going to say, and it was good. And this is good, right? Okay, then you get to, to verse 29. Look at what it says. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in it. You shall have them for food. Now, I just want to point out a few things um, kind of in Genesis 1, and this really kind of bleeds over into Genesis chapter 2. First, um, Genesis 1 and 2 paint a picture of man with needs. Okay, they, they paint a picture. Like what you see in Genesis 1 and 2 is in God's original creation, Adam and Eve have needs. Now, I'm not talking like your fifth car and your third house needs, right? For me, like your, your 100th power tool, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about serious needs of survival. Like, for instance, he, he created Adam and Eve with a need for food. If they don't eat, they will die. Right? I mean, it's not going to go well for them. He, he created them with the need for um, water. Um, so, so if they don't drink, it goes bad. He, he created them with the need for rest. He created them with the need for relationship. This is why in Genesis 2, he says, it's not good for man to be alone. He created you with the need for oxygen. All of this stuff, God creates you with these needs. Okay, now here's the second thing I want you to see. Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2 also paint the picture of God who provides for all of those needs, who meets all of those needs. See, this is what you have when, when okay, you've got Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the rest of Genesis 1, I, I think this is the best way to read it. It is God fashioning and forming the earth to make it suitable for man to live on. It's him providing for all of these needs. So he's going to fashion an atmosphere that's got oxygen. He's going to grow plants for you to eat, right? He's going to give water so you can drink. Okay, so you've got, right off the beginning, first two chapters, you've got a God who is meeting all the needs that he has created in, in human beings, in mankind, right? Okay, but now I want you to see this, though. It's not just a God who meets our needs. It is a God who goes over the top in meeting those needs. Okay, so, so think about how this works out. Meeting your need sounds like this. Here's water. Over the top sounds like this. You see all of those, those plants, all that fruit? You can squeeze that fruit and you can have a million different flavors to satisfy your thirst. That's over the top, right? Okay, think about food. 
Um, here's, here's meeting your need. Here's rice and beans for the rest of your life. Eat up, right? See, see, this is what, this is what meeting the need means. And I, I don't have anything against rice and beans. I like rice and beans. I just don't want to eat rice and beans every day, right? So, so here is a guy that goes over the top in, in providing for food. It's not just rice and beans. He says, look at all of that. You can put that in a combination of different flavors and, and kind of combinations of different food. And, and when you prepare that, it will make your throat wet, right? It, it will explode in your mouth with goodness. See, see, this is God. It's not just rice and beans. It's, I will give you all of this. You combine this in any sort of combination of food and flavors you want, and it will blow your mind. This is how good I am. Uh, think about this. God created you with taste buds. You know, God didn't have to create you with taste buds. See, see, your food could all be bland. It could be like eating grits or something like that, right? Just bland food. But it's not like that. That's not how God, he created you with something called taste buds so you could savor flavor. So, so when you have th- these multi kind of flavored drinks that hit your tongue, that you can taste those things so that you can dine over delicate food and enjoy that stuff. See, this is a God who doesn't just meet your needs, but goes over and above in meeting those needs. Think about the relational component. That God says, it's not good for you to be alone. So there's a relational need that happens in all of our heart. And God doesn't look at the dog and say, um, there's your best friend, right? That is not God. I don't know who came up with that slogan, but dogs are not your best friend. They're not. God created male and female to be best friends, right? This is how God created this thing to work. And can I just say, I know this gets a little bit awkward if you have teenagers in the room, um, but can I just say he created sex? I mean, that, that's a creation of God that didn't just kind of stumble into that. It just didn't kind of happen. This is God that created that stuff, right? I mean, you read Song of Solomon. Here's what you're going to find out. He didn't just create it for procreation, but he created it for pleasure. You get that? See, you, you read Song of Solomon and, and you're going to see that steam rises from that book. And it's not because they're trying to make babies, Right? It's because they're enjoying that. I mean, for crying out loud, listen to this. God takes a garden. He calls it paradise. He puts man and woman in the middle of it naked. Now see, if you're a guy, that should blow your heart up for God right there, right? You see this? See, this is a God who goes over and above and meeting all of your needs. Okay, now let me kind of pull out this last thing. Okay, now are you seeing this though? The, the picture that emerges from the first two chapters is not just a God who provides, but a God who abundantly provides, is abundantly satisfying all that you, all that you have. Okay, now here's the third thing I want you to see. That this combination of our need and God's provision, there's purpose in that. There's purpose in what God is doing. This is woven into the fabric of creation, the fabric of how God has created things. Okay, so listen to how this works itself out. There is a reason that you are created with a need for oxygen, a need for food, a need for thirst, a need for relationship. Here's what all of those things are doing. They function like signposts to you like signposts to me, to point us to God, the ultimate provider of all that we need. You see this? See, there's a reason that in the Bible, all of your physical needs are used as illustrations of a deeper spiritual need inside of all of us, 
right? There's a reason for that. So, so, so it, it plays out like this. When, when you are about to die of hunger, like, I mean, you are so hungry, you're about to start gnawing on your arm, like that hungry. And you walk into the house and, and the, the, just the aroma of, of fine food hits your nostrils. See, that is a moment of worship. See, that, that's a signpost to point us to a God who provides everything. This is why in, in Matthew 4, Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, right? That there's just more that you, you need, that God satisfies. See, it's just a signpost. See, when, when you're so dehydrated that you literally think if you don't get something like water on your tongue in the next three seconds that you're going to die. And at that moment, when you open the fridge and you see a huge glass of iced tea right there, just ready for you, you're right? I mean, that's a great moment, isn't it? But listen, that's a signpost for you. It's a signpost that says, listen, do you know the God that gave tea to you? Do you know the God that created those flavors that kind of all combined into that tea? See, all of that is a signpost. So you'll look to God as your provider. This is why in John chapter four, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. And he says, listen, you can drink that all day long. You can have this water forever, but you're going to thirst again. But if you drink my water, your thirst will be quenched. See, this is the picture. All of these physical needs function like signposts so that we will look to God as the one that will satisfy our soul. Okay, so this is woven into creation. So right off the get-go, I want you to see what Genesis 1 and 2 are setting up for us. They are setting up a you have needs and God is the provider. And we as human beings can look at God to meet all of our needs. So you know what the, the implication of all that is? We don't have to, to go on desperate searches for, for satisfaction elsewhere. Are you seeing this? The implication of God is good means we do not have to live on the desperate and dangerous search for satisfaction in other things. Adam and Eve don't have to do that. That the people of Israel don't have to do that. You and I don't have to do that. But wouldn't we love if the story went that way, right? So, so let me show you what a, a search for satisfaction looks like. Let, let me display this for you throughout the scriptures. Okay, we're going to start with, with Adam and Eve here. I, I want you to see, and basically when you go Genesis 3 on, the Bible is a narrative of men and women seeking satisfaction apart from God. So, so look at the story of Adam and Eve. Look at Genesis chapter 3 and watch how this plays out. Genesis chapter 3, it starts like this, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So you automatically, the, the narrator just kind of gives you a clue into the craftiness of Satan. That he deceives. That, that all of his plans and purposes are built on deception, on lying, right? Okay. He goes on. Crafty serpent, and the serpent says to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? If you read that with maybe some tone, it might sound more like this. Did God actually say that? That, that you, you don't, you can't eat of, of any of the, are you serious? See, see, this is the tone. Okay, now go back to the prohibition. If you flip one chapter back in um, Genesis 2, 16 and 17, here, here's what you find about the prohibition. And I think this is interesting. That, that God, he, he does tell them you can't eat of that one tree, right? J just the one, you, you can't eat of that. He, and he doesn't give like a detailed doctrine of the tree. All, all he says is don't eat from that one. And he gives clear consequences. If you do, you're going to die. That's all he says. He, he doesn't say this. He doesn't say, um, 
Hey, if you eat of that, let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to plunge yourself and the rest of creation, all of, all of your descendants. You're going you're gonna to move all of them, rush all of them right into rebellion. Chaos is going to follow. Your kids are going to kill each other. Death, fall, I mean, all, all craziness is going to break out as soon as you eat this. He, he doesn't give them all that. I think it's interesting to note why he doesn't. I think he's teaching them something by not teaching them something. See, have you ever had a moment where um, you're, you're trying to explain something to a kid or to a person, and it's just hard to, to get all the vocabulary out to, to explain to them and make it make sense to them? And so what do you appeal to at the end of the day? Just trust me, right? See, this is what's happening in Genesis 2 and, and 3. God is looking at Adam and Eve. He doesn't give them a detailed doctrine. He says, listen, here's the prohibition. Here's what's going to happen. And that's all he gives. And he's saying this, just trust me. Just trust me on this. See, Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, what, what's at stake here is not fruit. It's not them eating something. What's at stake here is, this is the question that is posed in these chapters. Do you trust God to satisfy you? Do you really trust him to satisfy you? Do you, do you trust that God is good for you? See, this is the question being posed to Adam and Eve. Okay, now and think about that now, that in light of what the serpent says. So God is saying, do you trust me? And the serpent comes in and he casts this shadow of doubt over the words of God, over the goodness of God. Like in the first two chapters, we have seen a God who, who presents himself as abundantly good in his provision and satisfaction for his people. And, and Satan comes in and casts this shadow over all that, right? I mean, you see what's happening here. I mean, it's almost as if the serpent is saying, um, if God holds anything from you, it's like him holding all things from you, right? Okay, so, so keep reading here. Verse two. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Verse four. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall surely, or you will not surely die. Flat out lie, right? I mean, just straight up lie. But then listen to what he says next. Verse five. For God knows that when you eat of of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And see, I think this is interesting because he's actually telling the truth there. But see, he present, he twists this truth though. He, he, he presents this truth as if what he is offering here is better. As if eating the fruit, eyes being opened, being like God is better for Adam and Eve. You see what's happening? It's just this shadow of doubt that's being cast onto all this. And listen, this is how sin works in every circumstance. This is how the serpent works in every circumstance. Here's what's going to happen. God is going to come on this side and give you a promise and a warning. I will satisfy you. All other searches lead to despair and hopelessness. And then Satan comes on this side and says, are you serious? If you want satisfaction, that, that is found right here. See, see how Satan works, how the serpent works in temptation is to offer you a bigger and a brighter future. Okay, and listen to the words of one pastor kind of describe this. He says the power, and this is going to be on the screen for you. He says the power of sin is the power of deceit. Sin has power through promising a false future. In temptation, sin comes to us and says, the future with God on his narrow way is hard and unhappy, but the way I promise is pleasant and satisfying. The power of sin is in the power of this lie. You see this? 
in the power of this lie. His, Satan's aim, is to subvert trust by influencing us to believe that the promise of sin is more satisfying than the promise of God. See, this is how sin works. And in, in, in you just name your behavior and underneath that, you're doing that because you are believing in, in this tangled web of lies offered by Satan that is gonna in some way, shape or form satisfy your heart. See, this is, this is the moment of temptation for all of us. Now watch verse six. In this moment for us are all, all moments. Look at verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. As soon as they stopped seeing God as good and satisfying, they instantly looked to something else as good and satisfying. See, the the moment you turn from God as the source of satisfaction in your life, then you're gonna go to some fountain and start drinking. You're gonna go on the desperate and dangerous search for satisfaction in someone or something else. This is all of our lives, not just an Adam and Eve thing, right? This is also gonna play out in the people of Israel. Look in Jeremiah chapter two. So, I mean, it would be nice if, if the carnage of Genesis three stopped in Genesis three, but the carnage continues, right? I mean, the people of Israel, if you just start reading your Bible forward, you see the weirdest behavior come out of them, don't you? Anything from sexual immorality to pride to arrogance to, to I mean, you name the weird behavior that's coming out. Now, I want you to look at Jeremiah chapter two. And look at what God says about all of this weird behavior that comes out in the people of Israel. What what he boils all this down to, Jeremiah chapter two, goes like this in verse 12. God is saying this. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Okay, now he's saying when, when we look at sin and when God looks at this sin, he is appalled by it. Like, like it is shocking to God. Okay, now when you think of what kind of sin would be shocking to God, what would fill your list of that? We might point to pornography. We might point, I mean, you could point to whatever. Whatever this behavior things that you might point to as shocking and appalling. But I want you to see what God says is shocking and appalling. Look at what he says here. He goes on, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. So all of their behavior issues, he's gonna boil down into these two things. Here are the two things. Here's what's shocking and appalling. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That they've forsaken me. So let me translate what what he means there. He's saying that, that I am like a fresh stream. You come to me, I quench. You come to me, I fulfill. You come to me, I satisfy. And here's the evil that my people have committed. They have turned from me as the source of their satisfaction. They've turned from me for that. They're looking in other places, in other directions for that. They're no longer prizing and pursuing me for their satisfaction. Now, isn't that interesting? He he doesn't point to their pornography first. He doesn't point to, you you named the deal. He points to, they have turned from me as the source of satisfaction in life. Okay, now look at the next thing he says. Because when we turn from God, we instantly turn to something else. Look what he says. Second evil. 
So you've turned from me, and secondly, and you've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. A cistern would be like a hole that a family would dig in their backyard that would catch rainwater. Now, hopefully they could line it with rock that would keep the water in, one, and keep it clean, two. But, but here's what he's saying. You've hewed out these cisterns that you're going to for satisfaction and life, but they're broken. They don't hold water. And not only do they not hold water, but when the cistern's broken, the water is nasty. R- rather than being a refreshing stream, it's more like sewage. So, so here's what he's saying. Here, here are the two evils. Boil all your behavior down to this. You have turned from me for your satisfaction and you've turned to these cisterns that are broken, that function like sewage, that the more you drink it, the sicker that you get. See what he's saying? That, that our problem here is that, is that we don't look to God for satisfaction. All of our behavior problems come from we're looking to other things to satisfy what only God can do. Okay, now wouldn't it be nice if we could look back over a couple of thousand years of history and say, aren't we thankful that we have outgrown that? I mean, wouldn't that be a great day, right? But that's not the case. So let me just kind of display this in the church, what this looks like in 21st century language and 21st century circumstances for you and I. Just like last week when we talked about this idol of control, um, the idol of comfort, looking for satisfaction in someone or something other than God, ultimate satisfaction there. That is also called a source idol. In other words, if, if you cut, sever this root of unbelief, a thousand different behaviors fall behind it. You see what we're saying here? That it's a source idol. When we believe in this idol, this false gospel of comfort, it, it leads to a thousand different behaviors. Okay, so we, we could just go down the list here. We could talk about the por- pornographic, guy, you know, the guy addicted to pornography. What, what's this man's problem? The problem is he has turned from God and he is looking to pornography to satisfy his soul. Do you see that that's where the battle is? See, you, you can set up any boundaries you want to behind that behavior. But if you desire that, want that, if you have turned from God and you're looking for your satisfaction there, it doesn't matter what sort of boundaries you set up in your life. See, his problem is that he's turned from God, turned to pornography. But, but let's maybe even make this, uh, we'll bring our ladies into this. This will be all of us in here, right? Take the shopaholic person. You know that person? Maybe you live with that person, right? They have always got to have the new thing and the next thing. You know, you know that person? Go back. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about here. Um, think about kids at Christmas, right? What happens at Christmas? If you've got a teenager in the home, here's probably how your home goes. They drive you mad, requesting, pleading, demanding that they get this for Christmas, right? I mean, regardless of whether or not Christ came to earth for Christmas, Christmas is going to be a dismal failure if this doesn't make it under the tree, right? I mean, this is how the story goes. And so Christmas comes and this thing happens to get underneath the tree. They they open it up and they are elated for about three minutes, right? And what happens in six months? It's over in some obscure corner collecting dust, right? Okay, now that's kind of funny when it's not your kids, right? (laughs) I mean, it's funny to laugh at that when you see it in other people. But you know what? And it would, by the way, it it would be even funnier if adults grew out of that. If adults grew out of that. Now, I want you to think about most of your spending and the patterns in your life and how it reflects the same heart of that teenage kid. 
I, I just got to have this and then I'll be satisfied. And then that doesn't quench. And so now we've got to have this and that doesn't work. And now we've got to have this. And we run from one thing to the next thing all of our lives. See, why is it that most of us are in crazy debt? It's because we are looking for things to satisfy us. So we've just got to have it. It doesn't matter if we don't have money for it. It doesn't matter what it costs us, right? It doesn't matter if we're going in debt for this. We'll we'll deal with that pain later. We've got to have this. It's going to fix us. And it never does. I mean, and listen, this is all of us in the room. Think about the last couple of things that you've bought. Can I just tell you, I doubt it has anything to do with needs in your life. You're going to have a hard time convincing me that the ninth pair of jeans you really need. Now, you tell me why you buy it. You tell me what's going on there. You tell me that that there's something not, there's not an ache in your heart that you're not looking to, to be satisfied in what you're purchasing. You see what's happening here? This is all of us in the room. And and we could talk for days here. We could talk about gluttony. And by the way, just to level the playing field, um, gluttony is not just indicative of your body type. In other words, you may be a beanpole in here with a fast metabolism, eating 48 Twinkies a day and still a beanpole, right? And it's still gluttony. So, so you don't get a, you don't get kind of a, a pass card just because you're a beanpole. That's what we're trying to say. Okay. So, so gluttony. W- what is gluttony? It is looking like it's turning from God and looking to food for satisfaction. See, this is what gluttony is. It, it's turning from God and looking to the third piece of pie for satisfaction. For the second steak for satisfaction. See, this is what's so weird um, in America. There's even something called comfort food. So, so when we get stressed, when we get depressed, we go there for comfort. We go there for satisfaction. When our boyfriend breaks up, we get the bag of Doritos and we just sit on the couch all night, right? Watch sad movies, right? I, I don't know. See, th- th- this is what we're talking about here, though. See, it, gluttony is, I've turned from God for, satis- for, for satisfaction and I'm looking in it for food. And, and we could talk for days here. We could talk about money, how people um, turn from God and, and look to gold for their satisfaction. We could talk about laziness. People turn from God and look to the couch for satisfaction. I mean, we could talk about a billion different issues that land on your life. So let me just ask you, where does, where does this turning from God and searching for satisfaction, where does this surface in your life? Because see, it's, it's one thing to sing and say that God is good for us, that he satisfies, but it's another thing on Tuesday in the face of the second piece of pecan pie to say that God is good enough now. That, that God is good enough when pornography calls. That, that God is good enough when we just gotta have this next thing. See, it's another thing to believe it then. So where does this surface in your life? Where do you see patterns in your life that just scream, you're looking for satisfaction apart from God? And listen, it's, this doesn't mean that you can't enjoy your kids, that you can't enjoy a purchase, that you can't enjoy food. It doesn't mean that you can't enjoy, there's nothing wrong with those things. What goes wrong with those things is when we turn from God and start demanding from those things what only God can give us. Do you see the difference in that? Okay, we're going to finish in in 1 Peter chapter 2. 
And I want to show you kind of the source of satisfaction one more time. Just remind you of this. Just so, so there might can be a discovery that takes place. The, the source of satisfaction. First Peter chapter two. So I, I want to, re, I want to end today by just reminding you. God is good for you. Listen, God is good enough for you. Like, like Psalm 16, 11, it's really true. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. In his presence is fullness of joy. That's true. That God is really good enough to satisfy every one of, of your needs, every one of your aches. That the God who created those needs in you is the God and the only God that can satisfy them. First Peter chapter 2, verse 1, goes like this. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Verse two, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Okay, so now think with me here. Look up and and think with me before we keep reading. Peter has just given a list of imperatives. Do these things, don't do those things. Put away malice, put away this hypocrisy, put away pornography, put away whatever gluttony, Put, put these things away. And, and do this, long for, for the word, long for God, long for these things. The question is, how do you do that? How do you make your heart long for that? I mean, how, how do you put this away and put these things on? How, how do you, now there's two approaches you can go at for that. One focuses on your behavior, one focuses on your belief. Um, so let me illustrate this with some, some Greek mythology. Now I hope none of y'all know Greek mythology. I, I just found out about it this week, right? And so let, let me illustrate it with, uh, with Ulysses and Jason. Um, Ulysses is on an adventure and he's taking his men by an infamous island called the Island of the, uh, the Sirens. And I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with this whole story, but the Islands of the Sirens. So a siren is a, a bird. It's got a, a body of a bird, the face of a female. That's scary, right? Okay, I'm already freaked out. Okay, so, um, and what happens is when sailors pass by this island, these sirens start singing this beautiful song. And before the sailors know it, they have turned their ship toward the island and they're sailing toward it. And the sirens kill them all. Sounds fun, huh? That's a mean bird with a female head. I don't know. Okay, so, so here's, here's how the story plays out. Um, Ulysses has been warned of this island. He, he knows of the danger. And so here's his strategy. He, he warns his crew. He gives all of his crew earplugs and he commands them to row as hard as he can, or as hard as they can. Essentially to row for their lives. They turn that ship toward that island. They all die. But instead of him putting in earplugs, he ties himself to the mast of the ship, commands to say this, you tie me here and you do not let me go until we're a safe distance away. So they sail by the islands, the sirens start singing, and it is a beautiful song to Ulysses. Apart from the ropes, he would jump out of the, the, out of the ship, he would swim to the sirens, and he would be slaughtered. See, the, only the ropes are keeping him in. The, his body is literally tied, but his soul has said yes to all of it. I want it. I love it. I am in for all of that. It's beautiful to me. Okay, now this is how most of us try to fight sin. When when we come with a list of to do these things or not to do these things, this is how we fight it. Our heart, like, and we'll just take pornography as an example because this is what we're kind of playing on this morning. So so our hearts are tuned into pornography 
For the, for the men, we love it. Our, our, we look to it for satisfaction. When, when we think what's going to make us content today, this is the thing that's going to make us content. It is the beautiful song of the sirens. And so as, as a way to kind of curb our behavior, we get earplugs out. We have people tie us to the mast of the ship. Here's what that looks like in practical life. We get covenant eyes on the computer. We make sure the living room, uh, the computer's in the middle of the living room, all of which are good ideas. Like it's not that those are bad, right? And so we, we might, even if we get real crazy and real ma- ma- uh, mad, we might even take a bat and beat that computer to death, right? Okay, so, so this is our, this is our thing. We're curbing our behavior when our hearts are saying, Yes, I want it. This is how most of us try to fight sin. Let's modify behavior, even though our hearts are still loving it, longing for it. Okay, now contrast, you listen to the pros with Jason. Jason has been warned of the same island, but he takes no earplugs. Instead, he takes a guy named Orpheus. And Orpheus is a man of incomparable musical talent. So he brings him along on the ship. And so as they start to approach the, the infamous island, the sirens start singing their song. And he orders, Jason orders no earplugs to be put in. No, nobody's being tied to the middle of the ship. None of that's happening. He looks at Orpheus and he says, play your most beautiful song. And he starts playing and the sound of a superior and more satisfying song fills the air. And it instantly drowns out the sounds of the sirens. Now, do you see how this works out in your life? See, when we start to look to God to sing a more pleasing song to us, the allure, the tempting power of all of Satan, the serpent's seductive whispers start to lose their power. You see how this works? Okay, now this is what Peter is saying here. Now watch what Peter does. Here's your, t- here's your list of do these things, don't do those things. Now, now watch where, how he grounds this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. So, and that so is a direct inference back to chapter 1 where Peter is unpacked. This is what God has done for you in Jesus. He's unpacked the gospel. Okay, so he says, so in light of all that, put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, all slander. Verse two, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Verse three, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Verse three, let me read this one more time. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, see, if you wanna put these things off and put those things on, you have to taste something. You have to get a superior and more satisfying song that is playing over your life. You have to start looking to God as the source of satisfaction for you. Do you see this? You have to start looking to God as the good in your life. See, when God appears satisfying to you, the allure of the second piece of pie fades. Gluttony is appeased but only when a more satisfying song is set over that. See, no longer do our hearts long for that because they found all that they long for in Jesus. See, when we start to look to God to satisfy the deep aches of our soul, we no longer put that expectation on our wife or our husband. See, see, now we're free to love them even when they don't meet all of our needs, all of our demands for satisfaction. See, when we start to look to God for satisfaction, We no longer place that expectation on money and now we're free to give it. 
See, when, when we look to God for satisfaction, when we've tasted that he is good and we're not looking elsewhere for it, we don't place that, that need for satisfaction on our relationship. So now we're free to give or forgive. We don't have to hold a grudge anymore. We don't have to hold bitterness anymore. Do you see what he's saying? When we taste and we sit under the superior and more satisfying song of Jesus, all the power of Satan's seductive whispers are lost. Let me show you just one example of how this plays out and we'll be done. Um, I'll just give you an example of how preaching to myself sounds in the kind of the, the instance of just lust for me. Um, so here's, I, I, I'm a guy that I love Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. And I'm a man who God has given desires. And because of the fall, those desires have gone awire. And when Jesus saved me, he started the process of redeeming those things, but they're not fully redeemed. And so here's what that practically means for me. My satisfaction in Jesus day by day, moment by moment, does not stay steady. And so there are moments in my life where the seductive whispers of, of the serpent, specifically in the area of lust, almost feel overwhelming. Like, here's what those seductive whispers sound like for me. Um, it, it, like that self-talk starts rolling like this. Um, if, if you want contentment today, here's where you can find it. If you want to be satisfied today, sit down there and you can have it. If you want to be full today, sit down here and you can be full. Now listen, that, that whisper right there registers with every, everyone in some way, shape, or form in this room through some different avenue, some different thing. Maybe pornography may not be your thing. Lust may not be your thing. Maybe something else. And so here's, in that moment, I have got to preach my best sermons to my own heart. And here's what that sounds like for me. Rodney, you need to be reminded of something right now. That God is your satisfier. That, that Psalms 1611 is true and his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand, pleasures forevermore. Psalms 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Rodney, you need to be reminded that God is good for you. The same God that created that desire is the God who will satisfy it. Rodney, you need to remember, you do not have to look elsewhere for this. You don't have to sit at any broken cistern and drink the sewage that only makes you sicker. Rodney, God satisfies you. He is good and you need look nowhere else. And may we all be able to preach to our own hearts like that. And may we all be able to develop this vocabulary, this gospel-laden vocabulary where we can admonish and remind one another. Amen? Let's pray. So let me ask you, where does the search for satisfaction take you? I mean, the reason God has given you a thirst that needs to be quenched is so that you will look to God to quench it. But the question is, is where, what, what fountain are you drinking from? Man, are you drinking from the, from the fountain of pornography? 
And listen, we don't even have to go to the physical act of pornography. I mean, we can just go in your mind. Are you lingering over, over images and over thoughts and over fantasies that you hope will satisfy you? I mean, is there, something, is there something in us maybe this morning that we just feel like we always have to have something else? Like, I, I've got I've to get this thing. When I get that thing, then I'll be okay. When, when I get this thing, then I'll be all right. When I can get a bigger house, a better car, um, more, more kids, a bigger family, a, more money, and when I just get this thing, then I'll be all right. I mean, where does that pattern of looking to things, where, where does that surface in you? I mean, maybe it is in food. Maybe it is in your purchasing. Maybe it is in how you're lazy. Maybe it is in how you deal with money. I think one of the byproducts of looking to God for satisfaction, of being able to say, God is good. I don't have to look elsewhere. You know what I think think that produces in us? A joyful contentment. A joyful contentment. So let me ask you the question right now in your job. Is there a joyful contentment? In your marriage, is there a joyful contentment? For those of you hitting your midlife crisis, a joyful contentment? In food, is there a joyful contentment? In money, is there a joyful contentment? See, this is, this, is what it, this is what it produces in our heart when, when we believe these things. We stop the desperate and dangerous search for satisfaction apart from God, and we get to just rest and enjoy the ride in what God has provided for us. So God, I pray for my precious brothers and sisters in, in the room. God, I pray that that you would make our men satisfied in you. God, that they would lead their families in such a way that they model what looking to you and and saying you're you're good, you're you're satisfying, what what that looks like. They would model that for their family. For for our ladies in the room, that their heart, that the deep thirst of it, they, they would look for it to be quenched in you. And God, I pray that in the midst of all that, that that because we're we're looking to you for satisfaction, that we could enjoy food, drink, family, jobs, recreation, money. We could enjoy all of these things without demanding them be a God who satisfies all things. So God, will you, you help us in that? God, I pray for this church, this group of people, this church family, that that God, we would have a joyful contentment in your satisfaction. It's in your great name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.